Good morning, Elmwood Park Bible Church. Good oh, man, you guys are wonderful. I got to tell you, I really missed you guys last week, and before I forget it, um, uh, Edgar Rodriguez told me yesterday to uh, tell the Elmwood Park Bible family, I said, what's up? So uh, <laughs> he says, what's up? Um, and I got to tell you, also, I, you know, part of what I missed last week, I mean, I was honored to be at um, uh, Cross of Christ Fellowship. It's a church plant out in uh, Naperville, meets at DuPage uh, Children's Museum, a uh, commitment I'd made back last October, but uh, it was good to be with them. But uh, Isaac and Paul, I don't know where Paul, Paul, I really missed you guys because the, the uh, djembe and the piano add such a rich texture to the music, and um, I, I, you may not realize that until it's not around, you don't hear it. So, uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for you guys, and I'm uh, honored to be here. I have one more Sunday that I'm going to miss before Sean gets here. It's April 29th. I'll be at Mount Tabor Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. And if you don't know where that is, then I am um, not the least bit surprised. Uh, but it's, um, as my grandmother used to say, it is plumb nearly. Um, and, uh, or as my daddy used to say, it's about three miles beyond the Great Commission. And um, so... Um, I am looking forward to that, of being North Carolina on a partnership building trip as we uh, continue to seek local churches to help us give life to Advent Church in the South Loop. Uh, pray for us uh, in that, if you will. This morning, as we uh, take a look at John chapter, um, excuse me, Joshua chapter 10, Joshua chapter 10, I've entitled this morning's message, Metamorphosis. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've got I to gotta be candid with you. Every level of my education... I took only the minimally required sciences and math. If I didn't have to take it, I wasn't there. And uh, I've just never really been a science guy, but there are a few things that I remember, even though I intended not to, uh, particularly from my days in um, biology in college, uh, there's so much more of that that I I have retained. I, I used to try to do a data dump after the final exam you know, just forget this stuff, but some of it's stuck there. And metamorphosis is one of those concepts that I learned actually probably back in elementary school. And every mention of metamorphosis that I can recall, the classic example is the caterpillar and the butterfly. Now, those are not the, uh, or that is not the only organism that undergoes such a tremendous uh, transformation. There are others, but that is one that's uh, probably most obvious and striking to, uh, to young children and probably the reason it's used uh, in school. You may wonder what that has to do with us this morning. You know, I found it fascinating. I don't remember how many years ago I discovered that metamorphosis, long before it became a scientific term, was actually a biblical term. Uh, in fact, when we look at the New Testament and we see uh, the words transformation or be transformed, that is the word metamorphosis. When Paul calls upon the Roman church, he's laid out a lot of uh, foundational doctrine in the first 11 chapters, and then at, uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, what I often call the hinge, uh, where he says, therefore, in light of all this uh, propositional doctrinal truth that I've laid out, because of that, in light of that truth, here's what you do. And one of the things he says, do not be conformed to the likeness of the world. Don't be molded by the unbelieving world, but to be 
transformed, metamorphosized, or metamorphosed, uh, I think is the uh, correct grammatical term, be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. The truth of the matter is, friends, regardless of whether we are New Testament Christians as we are today, or whether it was God's people in the time of Joshua, the transformation of his people is part of the natural uh, life flow of following the Lord, of being his people. And as we look at Joshua 10 this morning, what I want us to see and understand about the transformation that took place in them is to see it in the broader scope. We've already seen in the first nine chapters of Joshua instances where uh, the children of Israel uh, seemed to be uh, this uh, great force. There were people who were afraid and fearful, uh, and then they stumble up. They do something stupid. Actually, one man, Akan, did something stupid. Uh, and as a result of that, the whole nation of Israel suffered. And then there's this sense of confidence that people have that, hey, these folks can be beaten regardless of how large their army is. And then we see them being fooled and tricked. Um, as we uh, saw uh, most recently, as uh, Joshua and the leaders of the nation of Israel failed to consult the Lord when the Gibeonites came and said, hey, we, we, uh, we've come a long way. They, they tricked them and, and entered into a peace treaty. But as we look at the text this morning in Joshua chapter 10, we see that um, there is not only one army that opposes them, but there is um, a king who organizes other nations to form an alliance against the children of Israel to somehow take care of them to stave off this, um, uh, this uh, army that is moving into their territory. And as he does that, he, uh, he also attempts to, uh, to trick the nation of Israel to really sucker them into a fight by attacking those that that they have entered a treaty with. So in that context, what I want us to see are five qualities of, of transformation of God's people. How it happens, why it happens, what the result is. Five qualities of the transformation of God's people. Notice with me first that the transformation of God's people puts the world on notice. Verse 1, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Verse 2, he feared greatly. As a result of the circumstances of what this king had seen and witnessed and had um, uh, what the news that had flown or, or or gone from the, uh, the battles that had occurred, this king of this great city was terrified. He feared greatly. Why? Because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. Again, a couple of different times we've seen how God has transformed his people from a fearful throng fleeing Pharaoh's army. Remember back in uh, Exodus, if you haven't read it lately, I would encourage you maybe this afternoon to read through uh, part of Exodus. I think it was around chapter 14. They have uh, fled 
the Passover has occurred. The Egyptians said, hey, get out of here and take our stuff with you uh, so we don't lose any more of our children and our livestock. And then uh, Pharaoh began to realize that his, uh, his, his labor force to build the great uh, edifices to his own name and reputation were gone and said, hey, maybe we need them after all. And the children of Israel were terrified and frightened. God has transformed them already from that fearful throng fleeing Pharaoh's army to an army that itself is feared. He's transforming them even now into a people fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham that through them they will not only be a people who possess this land, but through them they will be a people that God uses to bless all of humanity. And as God is doing this, as he continues this process, it puts the world on notice. You see, the king of Jerusalem, again, he knows that Gibeon is a great city. And while the text does not specify this, it seems reasonable to expect that part of his concern was that if these people are so afraid of the Israelites that they have fooled them into some sort of peace treaty, then we have reason to be concerned. The transformation of God's people puts the world on notice. This is a consistent truth. It's not just in this instance, but we actually see that happen in the early days of the church. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 where you see the, the, uh, the church birthed and then the result of that, they're in, in and around the temple daily. Remember Peter and John saw a man who, was, who had been lame, I think it was from, uh, from birth. And he's there begging alms. He's just trying to get what he could get to get by. He had no physical ability to work. And Peter and John said, gold and silver have we none. I think that's the phrase the King James uses. But what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus the Christ. Get up and walk. That created a stir. And not too surprisingly, just as Jesus did, as he physically healed people, people came around and Peter began to proclaim the good news of Jesus, began to help these people understand, these who had lived their lives and generations before them looking for the Messiah, the one set aside for the redemption of God's people. Peter says this, Jesus, whom you crucified and who has been raised again, is And not too surprisingly, as they began to gather this crowd, we're told that people believed as a result of Peter's preaching. And we find in Acts 3 that uh, the religious authorities are a bit concerned. They thought they had been done with this Jesus guy. They crucified him. They killed him. They thought they were done of him. But of course, as we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, he has defeated death and now he has commissioned his followers to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaim this good news, baptizing 
those who would believe and teaching them all that I've taught you, he says in Matthew 28. And there we find Peter and John carrying this out and the religious authorities arrest them. And it's interesting to me in Acts chapter 4, we see this transformation of Peter and John. Remember, Peter was the one who, huddled by a fire, was so afraid of what might happen to him when, when Jesus was being taken down by an illegal trial that three times he denies even knowing Jesus. And now we find in Acts Peter saying, You know, do what you will, religious authorities, but we cannot stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, it says, those religious authorities and all around, all, all the people around them recognized that these were common men, but that they had been with Jesus. No longer was Peter the terrified fisherman afraid of what might happen to him personally by being associated with Jesus, to one who boldly says, you can do with me what you will, but we cannot stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. The transformation of God's people puts the world on notice. People notice that there is something different about us when we follow Jesus. People notice that there is something different about our lives, about our motivation, about our desires. They recognize that truth when our lives are transformed. And my dear friends, it has been my experience that what they recognize is that the transformation that Jesus wrought in our lives takes us from being that that sinful person like Adam in the garden who's somehow just trying to protect himself to being those who go from self-serving, self-seeking, self-protecting, image-conscious, religious dabblers to sold out, on fire, fully surrendered followers of Jesus who cannot help but speak the gospel. People notice that. And friends, corporately, when we find ourselves transformed into a people who are more passionate about the mission of God, more burdened about those around us who do not know Him, more concerned about the well-being of our community, the world takes notice. Several years ago, when I was still in Arizona, if I've shared this story with you before, forgive me. You'll just have to hear it again. Maybe you'll remember it for yourself. But I had lunch with our state exec in Arizona, man responsible for giving leadership, direction, and vision for all the Arizona Southern Baptist churches. And I asked him one day if he felt like the people in the pews of Southern Baptist churches in Arizona loved lost people. And he said to me, Dennis, we don't have enough men in the pulpits of our churches who love lost people. And I said, how can that be okay? How can that be okay? 
Again, if we are followers of Jesus, we don't find him hobnobbing with the religious authorities. We don't find him dabbling in the political power in Jerusalem or elsewhere in the nation. We find him with people like Matthew, who was viewed by his own people as a thief, one who robbed his own people for Caesar's good and to personally enrich himself. As did Zacchaeus, by the way. We see Jesus with them. He's accused of keeping company with sinners. Why? Because Jesus said that he came to seek and save those who were lost. My dear friends, when, when God transforms us into a people who are concerned not just about our daily existence, but about the eternal future of those who live around us, those that are in our sphere of influence, those who are in our network of relationships, when our concern grows for those who do not know him, when we are transformed into people who care about those who have not yet heard and responded to the gospel, the world takes notice. Well, notice with me also that the transformation of God's people is a testimony to his redemptive ability. Look again at verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. You see, this recalls that entering into the peace treaty without seeking God's counsel that the children of Israel had done under Joshua's leadership. Now I must confess to you that I'm the sort that I might look at that situation and say, okay Joshua, you got yourself into this mess. You're going to have to live with the consequences. But notice that God does not just leave his people to suffer those consequences. We see his redemptive character and ability on display here. Because rather than just leave them in this mess of a situation that they're in, God has redeemed this mess for the good of his people and for his own glory. Again, it reveals the character of God to not just let us suffer the consequences of our own actions, although let us never be surprised when we do. But we see God redeeming his people in this moment. You know, I'm reminded of this very clear-cut statement, again, part of the propositional truth that Paul laid out for the church at Rome in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all 
things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, notice he didn't say everything that comes along in your life is good. No, it says that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, this is the reason he gives. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And friends, I'm likewise reminded of the prophet Isaiah. The words that Jesus later made clear were speaking of him and his redemptive mission in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Listen, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. My dear friends, when we are transformed by faith in Christ, we can look at the circumstances of life, even the circumstances that we create for ourselves, a mess that we might even make by our own hand, and look to the redemptive character and ability of God to somehow bring good from it. Back in 1986, I had shared with my home church, Chapman Memorial Baptist Church, which is now merged with another. The the history of that church is concluded. But I stood before my church family in February of 1986 and shared with them a sense of call to ministry. I didn't understand what that meant. I went off to Columbia Bible College, now known as Columbia International University, later that fall. Spent one year there. Spent a summer working in a camp in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Then when I went back for my sophomore year, I was there less than a week, and I dropped out, and I went back to work. My reason I cited was apathy. I don't care. I went back to work in the trucking business, and by God's grace, I found myself working for, eventually, for the third largest irregular route truckload carrier in the nation, which took me to their corporate headquarters in Camden, South Carolina, and that's where I met Cindy. Now, I will tell you, I was just flat-out disobedient leaving school. Going back to work, I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted, and I just flat made a bad decision. And yet, because of God's goodness and his redemptive ability and character, He brought something good out of that. 
And my dear friends, when we follow Christ, even when we mess up, God has the ability to redeem that for our good and for his glory. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're really awesome and he's trying to to help us understand how really awesome we are. No, it's because he is awesome. And it's because of his redemptive character and ability. So notice with me also that the transformation of God's people often occurs in the cauldron of crisis. In verse 5, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. In verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Basically saying, hey, you remember the commitment you made to us? Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. We saw a few weeks ago at the conclusion of chapter 9 the faithfulness of the Israelites to their covenant with the Gibeonites. Even though they had been deceived, they remained faithful to that. And here, their transformation is put to test. The king of Jerusalem gathers these other kings, these armies, and again, they're going to sucker the Israelites into battle. Or they're either going to destroy their reputation by attacking those that they've entered a a peace treaty with. And what do we see the children of Israel doing? They take up the task. You know, it's one thing to realize they had made a mistake and say, okay, we're not going to wipe you out like God had told us originally. Letting them live is one thing. Putting their own lives and their own mission at risk to protect them is quite another. And why does it happen? How does it occur? Because their commitment was put to the test. The transformation of God's people often occurs in the cauldron of crisis. And this facing of these armies aligned against them. They faced the decision of whether they would go back on their commitment or they would fulfill that commitment. Well, they would, I mean, if you think about the original plan, if they had just let these other armies take care of the Gibeonites, it's like letting them do their job for them. They were supposed to wipe them out to start with. But no, they don't do that. They stay true to that commitment, that covenant that they had made. Again, realizing that it reflects on the God that they claim. 
And so they've been transformed from more than a self-serving band of marauders into a covenant-keeping, God-honoring, unstoppable fulfillment of what God had called them to be, possessors of the promise and a blessing to other people. That happens when they're under attack. Just over 13 years ago, Ashley Smith had a life that was in shambles. She was only 26 years old. She was already widowed. Her husband had been killed in a violent knife fight uh, just four years earlier. She had a five-year-old daughter. And she spent much of her time separated from her daughter because she had begun to let meth rule her life. Rather than deal with the complications of life and the heartache and the, uh, you know, the sort of pressures that most of us would never know, she had turned to meth to try to escape. And for years that had been her coping mechanism. She had given up her daughter to a relative who was raising her. Meanwhile, as Ashley was facing her own fight, she wound up in the middle of somebody else's drama. Earlier that day, Brian Nichols was, taken, was being taken to an Atlanta courtroom for a rape trial. As they arrived at the courthouse, the bailiff took the handcuffs off of him and he suddenly overpowered her, gained access to her gun. He goes into the judge's chambers. He takes a few hostages and eventually marches the judge into the courtroom and executes him. He also shoots a court reporter And in the process of fleeing the the scene, a federal agent encountered him, and Brian Nichols killed that man too. By the time Ashley Smith met Brian Nichols on the night of March 11, 2005, he's already killed four people. And he forced her his way into her apartment when she arrived home. And for the next seven hours, they sat in her apartment. The last time Ashley Smith had used meth was just the day before. And Ashley Smith went on to tell the story that she understood in that moment she had a decision to make. And rather than just turn to drugs, which she's had some on her, even gave some to Brian Nichols in the moment. She knew that if her life was ever going to be any more than it was, something had to be different. And throughout the course of that seven hours, she read passages from Scripture to Brian Nichols and also read passages from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. Years later, Ashley Smith recalled how God used that night and that violent criminal to produce a transformation in her own life. Ashley Smith is now a believer. 
She's actually been popular for several years in the church speaking circuit. She's remarried, has more children. And she's no longer that person afraid and scared and looking to meth to cope. But she said that happened. She felt like God brought her together with Brian Nichols, this violent killer, so that her life could be transformed. That she would begin to, in that moment, in that place, in those circumstances, not to trust the things she had trusted before, but to trust Jesus in that moment and with the remainder of her life. Now, friends, my guess is none of us will ever face the sort of circumstance that Ashley Smith faced. But the truth of the matter is, whether it's a minor aggravation with a family member, whether it's something that doesn't work right like we want it to, frankly, part of what irritates me more often than not is somebody in the left lane driving slower than I want to drive. Friends, that's nothing compared to spending seven hours in an apartment with a murderer. But the truth is, whatever comes our way, even if it's the small stuff that irritates us, or whether it's the larger crises of life, losing a job, a family member, a serious illness, my dear friends, it is often in that cauldron of crisis that God will transform us. That our faith will take on a a deeper reality. Our faith will become more substantial to us. We will begin to live out what it means to trust God in daily life. Not just for the eternal future, but in our temporal present. It is often the cauldron of crisis that God uses to transform us. Notice with me, Also, that the transformation of God's people results from trust in him. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. You hear that statement? Five armies united against them. And and God says, Hey, don't, don't be intimidated by that. Not a single one of them shall stand. And then verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. The Lord gave Joshua assurance that neither Adonai Zedek or any of the others aligned with him would stand. He would deliver them over to the Israelites to be conquered. That was God's commitment. And then notice, after that commitment, what the children of Israel do. They take action. You know, it's not completely unheard of, but it was a bit unusual for an army to march all night. And if you dig in the maps and look at the places that they talk about, they march 22 miles. Now, I know about you, friends, but there have been, there have been days... You know, late in the day, I, I think, man, I am so tired. And I look at my Apple Watch and say, well, no wonder. I've walked five and a quarter miles today. They marched 22 miles overnight. 
and then attack. You know, tactically, it wasn't really that terribly smart. They had the element of surprise. But physically, their army was tired and would have been exhausted. But notice that the reason they did that is because they believed that God would do what he said he would do. Their action is a demonstration of their trust. It's more than just a tactical decision. It is an expression of trust in God and what he said he would do. I'm reminded of the very familiar story of Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14. If you read the story, Peter did not walk on the water simply because he mustered the courage to do it. Again, I encourage you, go back and read Matthew 14 today. He stepped out on the water as a response to Jesus calling for him to do so. His stepping out on the water was an expression of his faith in Jesus. His trust that Jesus would take care of him. My dear friends, that is the very essence of what it means to live by faith. Pastor from my home church in Charlotte, the man I consider my Paul in ministry, used to define faith as trusting moment by moment that he will be sufficient for our every need. As the children of Israel marched up for battle, it was an expression of their faith, their trust, moment by moment, in God to do exactly what he said he would do. Remember, the Bible tells us that the righteous live not by doing good stuff, not by having a good reputation, not by being better than we used to be. No, the Bible tells us that the righteous live by faith and that by faith we find ourselves transformed from being fearful, anxious, uncertain, and cowardly to those who are surrendered, confident, and hopeful, and productive people of God. My dear friends, I would suggest to you that as we watch the evangelical church as a whole in decline in the U.S., realize there are thousands and thousands and thousands of churches that close their door for the last time every year. And my dear friends, I am convinced that more often than not, it is simply because somewhere along the life of that church, they stopped trusting God to do what he said he would do through us and begin to seek to preserve self and to protect. When we express our trust in God's character and his ability, we will find ourselves transformed, regardless of whether that's personally or corporately. The final quality of the transformation or quality of metamorphosis I want us to see is that it is accomplished by the power of God.
verse 10, and the Lord threw them into panic. He's talking about the um, armies aligned against them. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezek and Mechadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah. And they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed the sword. The children of Israel, the, the army, was faithful to its covenant and promise. They marched the 22 miles overnight. They took to battle. But ultimately, the battle was not theirs. But as God had promised, not a one of them will stand. Not a one of them will stand. And friends, the text says nothing about them getting lucky because of the weather. By the way, I would venture a guess that you'll never find lucky in God's word. No, it's because of what God did. My dear friends, again, I am convinced time and again that what God simply calls us to do is to trust him and to trust that he will work. Not in what we can see, not in what feels comfortable, not in what somehow protects us, but to trust him and to see him at work. Again, I'm reminded of one of Paul's letters, this to the Philippian church, when in his greeting in chapter 1 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He did not say, I'm sure that you can finish what you've started. He did not say from the very beginning that transforming work of lives of believers was started by God and that you will finish it. No, he says, the transformation of you, the Philippian people, was started by the Lord himself and he will complete it. He will complete it. Friends, I am convinced that one of the most effective and and malicious lies that Satan has used to hinder the work of the church in the United States, is convincing people who sit in pews and who stand in pulpits that our salvation is something we achieve or finish. And we also buy into his lie that if we haven't finished it yet, then we don't know enough. We can't communicate the gospel because we don't think we know enough. We are afraid to engage someone in a conversation of eternal significance because we're fearful of some question that they might ask and we might not know the answer. 
we buy into Satan's lie that we somehow have to have a degree or some theological diploma? No. All we simply need to do is to share what Jesus has done in our lives. The transformation that he has wrought in us. We might know some facts and we might be able to argue some church history as I have done with some J-dubs in the past. But my dear friends, I will tell you, I've never successfully argued anyone into the kingdom. It's just simply a matter of trusting God in the moment. Recognizing that the work of redeeming an unbeliever is not ours but his. Our role is simply to cast the seed, to bear witness, to speak of what we have heard and know, and to allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and understanding and the transformation of their life by faith in what he has done. It's not ours to do. It is his work. My dear friends, I believe Satan has successfully exploited our self-help society and has successfully appealed to our pride. The all that we have in our own power and our own desire for accomplishment. We glorify those in our American society who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and so eagerly and easily engage in idolatrous worship of human ability and human will. I've been guilty of that. My dear friends, the work in us is not our doing. It is his. And the work in those that we bear witness to is not ours. It is his. The transformation is his work. I want to call your attention quickly to our bottom line. Understanding that it's his work, it's his redemptive character at work, our transformation reveals God's character. It's not a statement about us. It is a statement about God's character. And when we view the crises in our life as part of God's work in us and transforming us, then we can welcome crises. My dear friends, it scares me to even utter that phrase. But when we view it in God's redemptive work, his work of transformation, we can welcome those crises. And then finally, our role in our transformation is simply to trust God's ability and character. It is simply to trust him. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?